Hey guys, Zoe here, producer of the podcast. Just swinging by here to let you guys know what this special episode is all about. We recently held a panel here in SF titled State of the Art in Human Performance, Biohacking, Athlete, and Military Perspectives. Normal host of this podcast, Jeffrey Wu, moderated the panel, with the guests including Human co-founder Michael Brandt, our research lead Dr. Brianna Stubbs, and retired Navy SEAL Admiral Alex Krongard. They had a great discussion about the nuances of human performance in their respective fields, pondered over philosophical topics such as what trumps what, natural talent or hard work, along with answering questions from the audience near the end. This episode is a recording of the panel. Unfortunately, the first 15 minutes did not record properly, I will take full blame, so we'll just be jumping right into it. Jeffrey Wu just asked the aforementioned question of natural talent versus hard work. Now that you have context of what you're about to hear, without further ado, please enjoy the state of the art in human performance. As much as you can try and like optimize and optimize and measure, maybe that gets the most out of you, but there are still always these people who are just like talented and are gonna I, make it. I, I do think there is always room to be be better if you eat better. Like, like I do think that in raw enjoyment of what you're doing, like if you like going for a 15 mile run, that's just an unfair advantage you have against the person next to you who's counting every calorie and like using the latest and greatest. So you, you might win. But if you're both, I would say that that's, that's the optimal. If you've, yeah. if you've got the, the natural talent and you know, the love of the game and you optimize really well, that's gotta be the best so this, outcome. This brings up one of my very favorite topics in human performance and that is, there's a small group of guys in the, in the SEAL teams, I'll just use an example. I used to call them the samurai because they were like focused on eating right. They had all the latest gadgetry. They mastered everything. Their gear was pristine. And then this like, you know, semi-fat slob would walk out and just crush them on a pistol, you know, some sort of pistol competition. And it made no sense and they would go back and huddle and go into meditation, you know, and that kind of thing. And they couldn't beat this guy. And um, it's just life is not fair. But the flip side of it is that, um, you know, every so often you've got a guy who combined it all. And those guys were just utterly extraordinary. And because they understood the technology, they understood their own bodies, and they just had raw natural talent. And, and they were unbeatable. I like the story about the putting the the one for one in the basket to your side. I, I think that's one of the things that I've realized is, is that so much of the equation just comes down to like, like fuel selection. Like so much of when you're trying to just do better, you're, you're super well trained, and especially in these ultra endurance events, so much of your outcome depends on like how well are you managing your fuel literally on, on race day. Um, and you just start realizing you're this machine that's turning this pile of food into like some outcome, some speed, or some some performance outcome, um, and and there's there, there's some optimization to be made there. Uh, and I think I think seeing your body from the third person as a machine of like, okay, this is what's going in. I'm a machine, and then I have this output has been a really helpful mental model. But I mean, I think I kind of like to counter that with it almost directly contradicts what you were saying about enjoying it being like a really powerful thing. Because personally, like I remember being like eight and doing my first. I mean, I started rowing when I, mean, I started rowing when I was ten, and I remember doing rowing races and just desperately wanting to win and going so hard until I like puked and like just being like crazy passionate. And then the further I got down the line of being elite and measuring and measuring and measuring, the further I got from that. And I actually, the race when I won the world championship most recently in 2016, it was so, it was comparatively dead. Like I was just like, the whole experience of being at the championship, we had like a timing schedule, everything, every minute was planned, every like gram of sweat, you know, like we'd get up and we'd all get, all four of us had to be a certain way, we'd get on the scales and then we'd be splitting the difference, measuring out like, you know, fluid that we could drink and that, you know, it was just like, and there was, it was like, it was not fun. And so I think like, it was not fun at all. And actually I've got this picture of me um, in my little shower cap um, and I used to sweat down to race weight listening to an episode of um, a, ra a radio podcast that lasted 15 minutes because I knew I had to be in the shower for 15 minutes and it just made it like that little bit more pleasurable and I'd have my sweat cap on and then ready to go I'd have like a plastic carrier bag and two pairs of leggings. Anyway, I've got this picture of me on the bus going down to the race course with this like woolly hat on covered in sweat. And... And I kept that picture because it reminds me of like where I kind of got to. Um, and so I actually think, you know, yes, measure everything, but also kind of enjoy it. And the happy medium and, is that well, in I the think, middle. Yeah, I think this is the close that thought. I think it's, you need some sort of passion to get started, right? Like, I think you need to have some 
I guess, naive joy to be like, oh, I like rowing, or I want to do buds and do seal training, or I want to start doing ultra marathons. And then once you start becoming a professional in it, then it becomes kind of a job, right? Like you need to be perfect machine-like on it. And that kind of the funness goes away because you're not experimenting out there, you're just executing the plan. But I think, you know, something that we used to work on in the team was trying to, like, um, visualize and tap into, like, those kind of positive emotions so you could try and, like, recreate it. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, it happened with varying degrees of success. But I think the mind is really powerful and there were some people that were much better at um, compartmentalizing the machine bit and the passion bit and bringing both out when they were needed. Yeah, let's talk about that. I like the notion of simulation, right? If you've, in your mind, done a mission a hundred times or wrote that world championship a hundred times, I think what you said, you're gonna feel a lot more relaxed and in the zone when you're actually in, in competition. So I'm curious from the military perspective and the, and the sporting perspective, what, you know, was that a focus? What were the routines, protocols to get as simulated to reality as possible? And maybe other technologies like VR, AR, that at the cutting edge that makes it even more realistic in, in, in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, this, I have been thinking, I, this, this goes back to kind of the samurai thing, I have been thinking a long time, I, my whole Navy career, certainly for you know, so over three decades, I was thinking about how do you attain mastery and how do you, and, and you know, a lot of it is just, a lot of it is how well you're trained. Um, you know, I was trained in the mid 80s by a group of men who had gone to Vietnam and we learned things from Vietnam. And frankly, after 9-11, not all those lessons applied and, um, and so there were some challenges there. Another challenge was that our training was developed, a lot of it, frankly, back in 1943, in the middle of World War II. And it was kind of a black box. People didn't really understand uh, why we did certain things. We just kind of did them. It's kind of like there's stories down in, Port in um, Brazil of people who were lighting candles on Friday night. And it was because they were you know, Jews, their families, back in 1492, kicked out of Spain. and they. They became hidden Jews, and um, but uh, you know we had the same kind of thing. We had these weird things we did. And no one could remember why we did them, and then every so often you'd find out why you did them. And you know they were generally speaking what we call lessons learned in blood. Um, but we would do things over and over and over again, and in the most efficient uh, training regimes, especially things associated with diving and parachuting, they're very very dangerous. You wouldn't even think, you just did something and you didn't even know you had done it. It was all this, it was just muscle memory. And, um, and, it, and but, it, the, but the hardest part of it wasn't doing the training, it was actually training the people that trained the people. It was, it was teaching people to train people. We, I, I, I'm amazed, and, and this is not a great rule and it doesn't always hold up, but generally speaking, we found that the guys who were great trainers weren't necessarily the great operators in the same way that great coaches in professional sports weren't always, you know, Hall of Fame athletes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what Alex is saying about repetition being really key, I think there's, um, like, is it the 10,000 hour rule or yeah. is it more rule than that? I think, like, if, if you do something enough, you will attain mastery. And um, I think for me, like, um, reflecting on my time, like, performing at that level, it's, Having having like a time to like mentally rehearse any anything that you're planning to do, whether it's you know give a presentation at work or um, or go and do some athletic endeavor, give yourself time to really think through all of the different scenarios. And sometimes in a in a, a rowing crew, we would talk through things as a team. Um, and so I think if you're if you're doing like a team presentation or working on a project together, having like open lines of communication and being really honest about how you feel and how that might affect your performance is something that is really important and can really um, be crucial to the success of a project. Yeah, so I, haven't, I, haven't I haven't gotten the same, again, the same level of world-class mastery as these two, um, but I have had some good results. Uh, <laughs> but, no, uh, but what I can say is, I, I, one thing that's always stuck with me is the mantra of, of train hard, win easy. Like, try to make your training scenarios as hard or harder than the actual game day will be. So stuff like if you're trying to train for endurance runs, like go for fasted runs, right? You can't necessarily go for a, a 50K run every every weekend, um, but on, on today's long run, that's maybe 10 miles, 15 miles, um, you can do that in a fasted state so that it's more gonna be more replicated to what your, what, if your race is that 50K, it's gonna be more replicated to that, maybe even harder. 
Yeah, so I think bringing more of the biohacking lens, I mean, there are things, I mean, there are banned substances that are banned for a reason. They probably work in, in terms of enhancing performance. I'm actually curious. I mean, I think it, there's probably a conception that, you know, the Nazis were using amphetamines to storm in, in, in the Blitzkrieg during World War II. Are American operators on crazy substances, or is it actually controlled? I'm actually curious also on the athletic side. I mean, how rampant is doping? Was there pressure to, you know, participate? Could one biohack and get around the system? Like, I'm curious in, in that milieu, is that possible? I think, um, like, no, straight up disclaimer, never took drugs. British T-Bone team's like 100% clean and there was a, like a very strict policy around that. But I can certainly see how the um, changes in professional sport, you know, there's more money involved, people become career athletes, it's not just amateurs anymore, you know, gentlemen British people doing rowing on the side, you know, it's like now this is people's careers, so all of a sudden there's pressure on them to perform. And um, I, do, I do think that doping in sport is a problem. Um, and I do think that the people who are practicing it are re really very smart and are always one step ahead of, of the people that are trying to catch them. And I mean, one example is there's an inert gas called xenon, which was not banned, and it was found that the Russians were using it in the run-up to the Olympics. It, it sort of increases your oxygen, yeah. it increases your oxygen carrying capacity, and you inhale it. Um, but it wasn't banned, so they were using it, and they were having fantastic results. And then subsequently, it was banned. Um, but it's difficult to detect and so there's a lot of issues in and around like um, what's legal and what's not and it's really it's a, you know difficult uh, grey area that I think is very very poorly defined and so whilst it remains poorly defined I'm really sure that people are going to carry on pushing the line. Military side, can you talk, can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, I remember, and I, who knows if this is true or not, but I remember um, back in, this would have been 1990, I think, talking to this Air Force guys, and, and this was when we were doing these really long flights from the U.S., and they were acting like it was, oh no, it was in Bosnia, it was in the mid-90s. And they were saying, you know, they had slept in the cockpit and all these other things, and I was talking to some Air Force pilot, and he goes, sleeping in the cockpit, we're taking speed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, and, and like you said, I think, I think the Germans invented methamphetamines in World War II to keep awake for pilots. And it's always, the military is, you, I mean, it's the ultimate desire for an edge, to stay alive, not to win the game kind of thing. And that stuff is always out there. The problem with it is that the, the um, you know, if the mission runs long and you go, suddenly you drop off the cliff or whatever, there's some real challenges. And uh, so you have to be very, very careful. But, I, you know, I think even more so than the banned substances, is I've been amazed at what people are able to do with un not banned substances. Like I am less, as a, when I was in charge of the four West Coast SEAL teams, the, the, the stimulant I was having the most trouble with in the ranks was not methamphetamine. It was like the giant, uh, you know, rock star and full throttle and stuff like that because guys were drinking it and they were doing other things at night to get to sleep or it's actually reversed vampire hours so they would go to sleep in the morning kind of thing. And guys' sleep patterns just became destroyed. And, um, and we had to look around, how could we help them sleep? Um, and there's a, a, a stupid one from the uh, 80s. Was, uh, I can remember when Power Bars first came out. That was a big deal. It was not a banned substance, but the difference it made, you know, someone putting a condensed carbohydrate product that was shelf-stable and you could carry in the field, that was huge. And uh, so it's, uh, it's not always the banned substances, it's the new technology. And, you know, like I said, sometimes it's pretty simple stuff. Yeah, like talking about the MREs and the food on the field, I mean, a lot of the innovation in like food technology came actually from the military. I mean, I think like the ketone ester, you know, human ketone came from a DARPA grant research more efficient fuels. You know, obviously we can talk about that if the audience is interested, but what other interesting technologies have you seen in the forces or in the teams that have transitioned into mainstream consumer use? You know, it's funny, in the beginning of my career, there was a lot of that stuff. And now it's exactly the opposite. You see this stuff, like uh, especially performance athletic, uh, sports stuff, it comes into the military vice um, the, the other way around. I, I, can't, it's, I cannot think of a single thing 
that we that came out of the military. So I'm sure there are. I just can't think of it. Um, but we, yeah, we just steal from the you know it's called cops consumer off the shelf. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious in terms of you know your personal regimens and protocols. So obviously you guys are have evolved along your careers. Uh, you know, buds training versus you know, Olymp you know, you know, training out, training out for you know the British team, going from an amateur athlete to a, a more serious and competitive athlete. Um, what do your protocols look like today? Like, what does Alex Krongard, uh admiral, not you know, not a strapping young you know, you know I guess captain or you know, young officer? What, what does that what does that look like? It's like a desperate search for time to do work out. No, it's it's been a lot about how. The, the simple answer is, I, I find there have been uh, one, two, three, four, I think five like phase transitions in my life. 22, easy. 32 was like the prime. I mean, literally the prime. Uh, 42, you know, there was inklings of disaster looming. In 52, I fell off the cliff. And now I think I'm you know, at the bottom of the cliff trying to figure out if I'm gonna be able to get up and walk. Um, but the, uh, you know, there was, uh, like, I try to find stuff I can do, jumping rope and kettlebell swings. Oddly enough, seem to scratch enough itches. And then there are just certain, like, what I'll call prophylactic exercise, certain stretches to do. But, you know, in terms of physical regime, I think sleep and diet are, you know, if you get those right, you're, I, I don't know, I've heard 90% of the way there, 80%. And everything I've seen on the you know N equals one science project that is Alex Krongard suggests that's true. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean like that's that's probably like the main key take home message: sleep and diet. Those are two things that you can control really really easily, and they're really going to make a big difference. But I mean there have certainly been a few things that I've been experimenting with now that I've got a little bit more freedom to experiment because actually when I was on the team everything had to be so finely honed that there was no real time for self-experimentation and so uh, since I finished rowing and I moved to Michael and I are training together for Ironman and triathlon events and cycling events um, I've been able to experiment a bit more and so I've been uh, doing intermittent fasting with human and that's helped me out in a lot of ways I think that's really really easy for people to experiment with whether it's you're going to try even just a 12 hour fast overnight you can push that out to 16 24 you can really it really will meet you where you're at so I think that's something that I've taken from, from these guys that's been really, really valuable for me and I felt like um, it's given me uh, much better awareness of my diet and eating better than I had before and also I feel more energised when I'm, when I'm fasting, more productive. So I think that's a really great um, thing that I would recommend everyone try. Um, and also I'm more into a more regular practice of meditation. Um, again, it was something that kind of fell by the wayside when I was studying but also growing um, <clears throat> and now I try and make 10 minutes every day for a little bit of mindfulness practice. Um, uh, other than that, like, I still work out most days and um, track things kind of obsessively. That's kind of boring much of all of the same. <laughs> yeah, as far as day-to-day -day routine, I, I, always, I try to do something active every day. I think that's just another good mantra, do something active every day. I do a lot of... I, I, I try to explore the whole range. I don't just think about it as working out. I think about it as metabolic conditioning. So every, every workout or exercise has some sort of goal, and I'm trying to always extend the range in some way. So I'll go on a, a really long run at a lower threshold, or I'll go on, or I'll do like sprints every, every week, and you are all invited to come. We do, I, I do a, we, a lot of us come to a track day at Kazar, and I'll do the track workouts, right? So, so exercise that part of the range, get really uh, good power, get really good fast twitch exercise. So always trying to extend metabolic conditioning in, in by focusing at one workout in one particular direction and extend out in that direction and then the next day do something else. And it's like constantly like pushing the wall out and then if you're doing it right, then it, it builds and like the, the, your capabilities expand just across the board. Cool. I, I, just, you want to jump I, in? I just want to echo the mindfulness thing, if I had to pick one thing after diet and sleep, it would be, and I'm not so sure the mindfulness thing doesn't allow the other two to happen. Um, I, it, and, and everyone has a different mindfulness like protocol that works for them. And uh, but I, I think that's a huge new development of the last, well, it's been around a long time, but it's actually come back into vogue 
in, I don't know, the last 10 years maybe, is one. And then the other, the other thing that it's not a practice, it's a danger, especially as you get older, is emotional stress. And I have seen that wreck more people than any other single thing I can think of. Um, it seems to be at the, you know, the, uh, at bottom of, you know, all kinds of abuse problems and in all, you know, a lot of other things. And uh, I think that's where the mindfulness really comes into play. And I think what's really, really cool is soon we're going to have ways to track how that, uh, if you're actually working for you. So I have a friend here in San Francisco who has used like uh, brain monitoring to look at his balance between alpha and theta brain waves. And, you know, we're still a little way away from that now, but I think it would be really cool if in the future we can put on a thinking cap and it'll tell us what's, what's going on inside and whether we're actually making meaningful changes with mindfulness practice. Yeah, I think, and also just interventions, right? Like, can nootropics, exactly. ketones be anxiolytics, or can you derive the outcomes that we're measuring here? Yeah, at the end of the day, yeah. the more um, sensors that we have to tell us whether the interventions are working, the better equipped we're going to be to be healthier and yeah. better. I always like when people are vulnerable and talk about, like, like the biggest setbacks, like the lowlights. I, I think we all have a sense of you know, you guys' big, you know, achievements and, and, and the highlights, but you're not all perfect, I know. Um, you know, what were some of the crushing moments that you had to overcome and, you know, what was the learning moment from that? Want to start? Oh, it's easy. So, hardest job uh, intellectually, certainly, of my career, working at the building next to the White House on the National Security Council. I get there in January, I think at the end of the month I had an appendectomy, and then August uh, my wife and kids arrived from California, and by, I'm going to say November, I come to the, the, you know, the realization that my marriage of, I'm trying to think how long it had been there, like 16 years, was cratering. And I'm, so I'm having this insane hard job, and everything, you know, when I go home at night, it's worse than entering the office in the morning. and. Uh, you know, so all this stuff I learned, uh, especially with the mindfulness, I, you know, I learned it the hard way, not, I didn't go to some classroom and learn it, I had to figure it out when I couldn't sleep kind of thing. Um, so I, I think, actually, the, I mean, I just, it's a, like the takeaway from that was really just controlling emotions and being mindful about that and incorporating that now. Yeah, but it took, it, it took a good four or five years to figure it out. I think you know, all of these things, all of the things worth having, they're kind of like hard to come by, right? Lots of work. Um, personally, I think, you know, a similar kind of like low point was where I had, um, I'd won the under 23 world championships, like coming off this massive success. I had a load of momentum and all of that momentum kind of like propelled me into the first term of my PhD. Uh, and I was making the step up from the under 23 team into the senior team. And so I had um, just a lot of um, excitement and energy and enthusiasm and I just was so hungry to prove myself that I massively overcommitted myself. I was doing all of the training for the senior team and then also staying in the lab and I would stay in the lab doing my PhD work until the last person left because, because I was out in the morning doing rowing. Um, you know, people were calling a couple of the other professors. They'd kind of been like, oh, you're not going to get a PhD at Oxford being a part-timer. So I was sort of super sensitive about needing to, to be physically there. And so it ended up being these, like, days where I'd be up at half past five and not getting back at home until, like, eight. And then, you know, it was, like, home, laundry, some food, like, sleep, alarm goes off. It was this, like, crazy, um, crazy life that lasted maybe from... September when I started the PhD in training through to December and I got to this point where um, I couldn't physically do the training anymore. I was getting really, really tired and really run down. I wasn't listening to my body and I was in the lab in these big circles under my eyes and so pretty much at the same time, my as well, I was getting really sick, my PhD supervisor sat me down and she was like, you just look really awful and you're quite good at the room. Why don't you just, you know, I don't think this is good for you. You should not do your PhD anymore and you should just go and focus in on the rowing and this was at the same time when I physically couldn't do the rowing training because I was so run down and I you know it was just like this horrible chess mate where I couldn't do anything and I remember getting out of that meeting and going and sitting outside of the department of physiology in Oxford and just crying down the phone to my parents and I just at that, at that point I couldn't really see a way out from the solution because uh, from the situation because it seemed like both people were telling me that I couldn't carry on doing either of the things and then I had what nothing 
Um, and then we had, I think what I took from that is you need like a crisis management plan. Like being in a crisis really, really, really sucks. <laughs> and um, I mean, there's a natural and healthy to like ride out those emotions. But then once you've had that, that release, then you've got to start working out well, what is actually the solution. And so I am... Um, Does that had, mean you have like a paranoia plan for like every... No, I don't. But I think, I think it's when, when, when you get into the situation, you can... I think it's... I'm allowed to wallow in it a little bit, but then you've got to start being proactive about getting out of it. And so the, I think um, I spoke to the GB team doctor and we arranged a meeting between the professor and a representative of the team. And so we got all of the people in the room and they were like... They were both like, well, this isn't working. And I was like, no, it's not really working, is it? <laughs> And so we, in the end, we managed to change my training schedule because the thing was, I hadn't, GB Rowing expected me there every day and the lab expected me there every day. And so I was trying to do that. And so we changed those expectations to like, okay, what's the minimum that you might be able to do and make both of these things work and we'll try that and then we'll reassess. And so I ended up on a pattern where I would train with the squad three days a week and then two of the work days a week, I would be just in Oxford and do my own training. And so getting the, the two other stakeholders in the room and having a really productive conversation gave us a, you know, a thing that worked moving forwards. And then once that dialogue was open, I was able to fit the two together a lot better but I think without getting those two people in the room and talking it would have never worked and so in the end it worked before Michael jumps in I want to start answering or asking audience questions so once Michael uh, finishes his embarrassing sounds like we're sharing pretty I mean brutal moments um, let's get to audience questions so yeah so I have a story from early days of running human then known as NutriBox and when it was early days uh, Jeff and me we we had a couple people helping us out and we were just working all the time, like all the time. Like that's what you have to do when you start a business. And and I think just the competitor, me, the competitor, and and Jeff just wanted to eke every, just do as much as we possibly could. Uh, and just feeling like we could do it, feeling like okay, there's no problem we can't solve if we really put our brains to it. Um, I remember at one point, like it just like added up. It was like the, the, there were too many levels and layers. You know, you'll remember this. Um, I, I, I don't know what yeah. you're going to say, so I'm actually so, so, so one of the early stunts that we were doing back early days was um, we, we got this guy who's like really good at Rubik's Cube, who's like, he can solve Rubik's Cubes like in his sleep, like blindfolded, he can like look at them and memorize them and blindfold himself and come back a half hour later and solve them, like he's, he's nuts, um, he's, he's, he's super talented, and we, we flew him out from Texas and he was going to like solve some some Rubik's cubes, and we we're gonna like live stream it on Periscope, which like just launched. My friend was gonna like hook it up. It was gonna be on the main page, all this stuff, and um, it was awesome. It was, and I'd lined everything up, like checklisted everything. It was gonna be perfect. And I, just, I don't remember what it was, but there's something on the day. There's like a snafu where like things were like not running on time, and I just started like freaking out. And I just like didn't know how to communicate. I was like, I don't know if it was a panic attack or what, but um, I was like not. I was not in a good state to where I was, I wasn't like throwing productive energy at it, I was just like freaking out. Um, like why is this happening? Like is this supposed to start 10 minutes ago? People are watching, like uh, um, you remember now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it sucked and I think that, I, I think the takeaway there, it was, well, I mean, there was no, there's no resolution to the event itself. I mean it went off, like we did it, got a ton of people watched it, it was a little late, that kind of sucked, like whatever. Um, but the takeaway there was just like to, to be able to tread more lightly. I think another realization is that you're part of a team and like you need to, in order to do the things you want, you need to surround yourself with people that will help you do that. And that's, that's the first half. And the second half is you, have, you just have to always like communicate well. And the people you're around need to communicate well. You need to, you need to give a good sense of what your state is to the people around you. And they need to be giving a good sense of what their state is to you so that you're just like the the network of people that you're part of is like well-functioning synapses. And, because there's just gonna be holes. There's gonna be bad days. There's gonna be things that extend beyond your capabilities. And if you have this well-functioning network, you're a little bit more resilient. You can take like a harder blow. Uh, you'll adjust to it better than if you're just trying to be really rigid and, and do it all on your own. I think that seems like to be like a, like a SEAL team like ethos, right? It's a good mm -hmm. team. Well, I want to open up the audience questions. Do we have any takers? Otherwise, I want to keep asking questions. Yes? So, uh, I work as a library scientist, so my, my question is, we know exercise and nutrition are completely tied to how we think and how we feel, and 
some research just a few days ago, exercise and diet appears to work as good as maybe antidepressants for people who are clinically depressed. So there's this brain interaction, but we don't really measure the brain as well as we measure urine analysis and, and uh, glycogen and other things, cortisol. Do you guys do any brain training? I mean, lots of your examples, uh, my son rose, lots of examples where you, what you do to get yourself through mentally, the, the two by six K or you know, whatever you're trying to achieve with your split times, you have a lot of downtime in theory when you're, not, when you're just left with your own brain and yeah. think about how you're going to approach the day. Do you guys do a mental regime to, to get yourself ready even today? So, I mean, it's not something that I do at the moment, but certainly on the team, I was talking a little bit about visualization. That would be something that would be very, like, scheduled, and I would look at that as brain training. And something, like, if I could go back and do something again, there's some really fascinating research coming out at the moment around... Um, training in a mentally fatigued state so so before you go and do your long run you sit and do the similar to like crossword puzzles difficult reaction time in fact i think it's actually got to be a really boring task so you've got to sit for half an hour before you go and run for an hour and wear your brain out and so even though physically you're uh, fresh still putting yourself in that mentally tired position gives you the benefit of um having trained for longer so i think um that's something that uh, maybe i'll try now out as i'm doing these like more endurance events i didn't do it at the time well, I think so the research that has come out around brain games is that they're pretty domain-specific, right? I think you saw some of the controversy with, like, Lumosity and some of these, like, brain training apps. And I think that the consensus there has been these don't really translate that well, right? Like, if you're really good at memorizing, like, the number of sheep that are jumping, yeah, it doesn't translate that, that well. Yeah. I think it's got to, I think what I think what you're both saying comes together. It's got to be specific for what you're doing. So if you want to be a master uh, musician, then you can you know maybe not just practice but visualize as well. And with rowing, for example, when we were injured, we used to do a lot of video analysis because obviously research coming out that when you watch someone doing something it kind of activates your motor cortex or pre, you know, prefrontal cortex, whatever the, the upstream pathway of that is. So you can actually start training in some of those motor patterns just by watching and then being mindful of you about thinking about. So I, I certainly think that that's really powerful. And so, yeah, maybe brain training apps are a little bit kind of gimmicky, but if they're getting people to engage and think about their brain, then that's a good thing. I think the, fir the first step is realizing it's something that's um, an, a weapon in your toolkit. And then it's like, okay, so how do I sharpen my weapon to be, um, you know, like a computer programmer or an athlete or whatever it is. I mean, um, for example, kickers in the NFL, they'll just take hundreds and hundreds of shots. And that's kind of like not only a physical practice for them, but a mindfulness practice as well. Great. Other takers? Yes. I have a question to you. What was the most profound thing that you learned from Dr. Oh, wow. So many pearls of wisdom. Um, I can, well, let me, can I just add context? So Professor Karen Clark was uh, Brianna's uh, research advisor over at Oxford University. Uh, and she also invented the ketone ester as an expert in, in ketosis. So that's the context. Do you and mean, um, like, is an overall picture or kind of specifically to do with science? Because I want to answer your question properly. How about both? I guess more from the science. Oh, yeah, okay, so I guess like more generally, um, it was always, you know, as, as a woman in science, it was always um, great to have another like strong female scientist heading up her own group and also like um, she was also commercializing and working on the pathway for making the keto nest to happen. So that was, you know, uh, by watching her do that, I, I learned a lot about what it means to be driven and to work hard. Um, and she was a great role model. Um, and then in terms of the science. I mean, I feel like a lot of that would have kind of come to me through osmosis. I think, um, I just think she managed to kind of like imbue into me all of the excitement for all of the different possibilities that there are for the keto nester. She does a great job of being realistic and conservative about what we already know um, and also um, opening up questions so that people can go away and do more research because, you know, the way I feel about the keto nester is that there's a list of things as long as my armor that I'd like to try it for, and I'm really, really excited to be part of that. And you know, I quite openly list what they are, but it's not um, no, nothing's about it's known yet. So it's like we have to tick them off. And she she struck a really great balance of excitement and realism. Um, so does that answer your question? 
Brandon. Sure, so um, for Jeff, Michael, Brianna, pretty loaded question, but for how do you think about forward guys going for human? How do you apply it into an approach with a scientific method to biology, which is highly nonlinear, highly complex, and you need to have like a single, simple solution? How do you think about actually innovating, creating, and, and R&D I think that's a good question. So I think that, yes, biology is very complicated, but it's, you know, one, I, I guess at some, some point, needs to, need to decide whether it's like religious or practically, is this a system that has a set of inputs and can we have measurable outcomes? And I think for medicine, which is applied treatment of certain types of diseases or therapeutics, there are clear measurable outcomes for medical use. Right? Like, okay, we're going to have randomized controlled trial, we're going to reduce cancer recurrence rates using this compound. And you can tease out truth from that. So I, I think there, so I, I think from, from, so I'm a computer scientist by training, so I, I like the bottom of approach. Can you simulate like atoms and then build up, build up the complexity of, of, of human beings? Well, that's outside the scope of current technology, but you know, I, I, I guess this is more philosophical, but yes, I believe you could simulate humans from, from, with, with computing. Um, so applying to human performance uh, and, and bringing that a little bit towards something that we can actually you know, grapple our minds on, um, things that I think we should be paying more and more attention to are things that we can measure, right? I think there are enough things that are subjective. Do I feel smarter? Do I feel more awake? You know, caffeine like, kind of makes me feel like I'm more alert. But can we apply these things that are measurable? So I like fasting, for example, because you can actually measure before a fast, after a fast, changes in your glucose levels, changes in your ketone levels. Can you start doing some brain training games? But you know they're not quite the best possible metric for learning or cognition, but at least some signal that probably reflects some underlying truth. So I think science is about building up a set of tools. Um, and I think you can put together you know, the existing body of work and still make strong claims on how things work in, in biology. You guys want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would say that one thing that dawned on me was when we started, I started wearing continuous glucose monitor, and it's like you can open up a biology textbook and see how like your blood glucose levels would respond, but there's something about seeing it in yourself, and also there's, there's personal differences that you're going to see from the person next to you, um, where you're not like inventing new science there, but you're, you're applying it to your own self. You have a better tool to be able to manage your own system. And so I think that it's a lot of it is a, a technology and user experience problem that's being solved where there's going to be lower and lower friction. Like we were talking about earlier about all the burden that's caused by all this measuring and how that's almost competitive with the love of the game. Like you can't love it and have to do 20 metrics at once. But I do think friction is coming down to where like we're all going to be, like instead of having a team of physiologists, it's just going to be an app on your, on your phone and you're going to be able to have be like Olympic level uh, uh, outcomes like that that level of monitoring and maintenance but it's just going to be like free or five dollars a month or something yes two of you mentioned the continuous glucose monitoring and I haven't heard of that before I'm curious but I just did a google search and the first two results were literally one at Walmart for $36 and one that cost $780 so can you <laughs> Just give me a little bit of an insight on what you guys are using yeah, there. Yeah, I can take that question. Um, so I'm actually curious like what specific products you're looking at. So uh, continuous glucose monitors were a medical device uh, designed for diabetics. Uh, you have to very carefully track your blood sugar, especially if you're type 1, which means you don't produce insulin, to make sure you can you know, add in, enough insulin in your body so you don't die and starve. Um, but we, more and more and more biohackers are using that as a baseline dashboard for general metabolic health. So I think this put, we should put this in the context where a third of Americans are pre-diabetic and diabetic. Uh, over half of us are morbidly, morbidly obese and those rates are increasing really, really rapidly. Uh, so there's a lot of interest within the biohacking community and in startups building cheaper and more available continuous glucose monitors. So probably what you're seeing, you know, if you do a Google search, especially in America, is that there's a medical device. You have to go through a doctor to acquire a CGM. When we acquired our CGMs, we actually did it through the gray market. We bought continuous glucose monitors in, from the UK through eBay. 
because you just can't get it through normal channels here. Um, and, and, and now as we've grown the company, we have you know, more forward-thinking doctors who um, you know, you know, are open to experimenting at, at the edges. I, I see Dr. Scott Scher who runs a hyperbaric oxygen therapy practice, which is uh, being in a tank under high atmosphere in um, 100% oxygen, and there's like 13 therapeutic use cases that, you know, that are officially you know, medical use, uh, uh, uses. But there's a lot of exciting data about potentially using that uh, for enhancement. Uh, can you increase aerobic capacity, for example? So I think you start seeing more and more medical devices going to consumer hands. But yeah, I, I think if you want you know, to talk CGMs, I think there's you know, a lot of doctors who are now open to saying that you have prediabetes and you need to be more careful about your sugar, and, and you can start measuring it. Yeah, there's a number of examples like that of like medical necessity creating the technology, leading to the creation of the technology, but as scale goes up, then it becomes more just a consumer device where like I, I can use a CG, I do use CGM to do my metabolic conditioning. I can see like what are my general glucose levels before I go into a run. I a question over here. Yes, please. So my husband had cancer in 2000, late 2014. He used the ketogenic diet to shrink his tumors rapidly from 14 centimeters to 1 centimeters with chemo and radiation, wow. fasting. Yeah. And we followed the GKI, the glucose ketone index calculator for the glucose test. Not only did the ketones need to be high, the ketones need to be low. Yep. And we measured using this Heads of Health web app and we graphed how long he could stay. Like, I saw your um, human uh, podcast, he podcast yeah. on C3. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he's the Boston professor who... Uh, yeah. ...for the glucose ketones index, GKI. Yeah. He um, was very um, adamant about therapeutic ketosis, especially if you're going to enter therapeutic... <coughs> HBOT, yeah. You have to be 1.0 ratio or lower, GKI. And so my question is can the human ketone ester help with that? Like if you're having trouble with fasting or ketogenic diet to stay in that three Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. So, absolutely. Um, so the ketone ester is a sports drink. Um, but I think we're excited about uh, a number of use cases beyond just sporting performance. So what I will say is that, um, I mean, I, I think this is part, part of like, the, uh, like a cool demo, like with something that you can measure with like a finger stick with ketones and glucose, um, we oftentimes see, and I should probably let Bree talk about the pharmacokinetics here because she ran a lot of the studies at Oxford. But you know me as a biohacker and, and, and testing on myself and seeing and giving to you know dozens of people. Um, so if you're familiar with like the, all the different ranges, you know we see people between you know starting at 0.1 millimole ketones to three to five millimole ketones in 15 minutes, right? And that's equivalent to sort of like 10 days of fasting or like weeks of eating on a ketogenic diet, a very very strict you know high fat low carb ketogenic diet. Um, I think one of the interesting other effects that we see is we often see 23% uh, suppression of glucose. So, um, uh, you know, if you're at like 100 milligrams per deciliter, we sometimes see people go down to 80, 70 milligrams per deciliter, um, which would put people into, you know, a very interesting range for therapeutic use. Um, but yeah, I think to just zoom the scope out a little bit for, you know, audience that might not be familiar with Siegfried's work and, and the work there is that, uh, Cancer, uh, off, a lot of types of cancer use glucose, sugar as a fuel source, um, and aren't very good at using ketones. But you know the rest of the body are very adaptable, adaptable to use ketones as a fuel source. So if you could starve cancer of um, of glucose, sounds like your husband was able to successfully do that. Uh, oftentimes you see interesting results. And I think there's you know been quite a bit of published literature around stacking multiple of these interventions together, right? A ketogenic diet hyperbaric oxygen therapy, um, potentially exogenous ketones. Um, yeah, I, I think that's an exciting you know, field, of, field of research. 
want to comment, you know, additional on the pipeline or your thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, there is like some good animal work that's used exogenous ketones and looked at tumor size. And I think um, that Jeff mentioned that it's, you know, stacked alongside the ketogenic diet and uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, things like that. It's never gonna, it's never gonna be something that you take by itself. But you said, is it something that's gonna help? And I think a lot of people do find the ketogenic diet difficult to, to maintain. And um, so I think if you find the ketogenic diet difficult to maintain and it's helping with your, your cancer, then this could help you to adhere to it because it will raise your ketones and it will lower your glucose. But it's not, you still would have to make an attempt to, to follow the diet because it's only in your system for you know, three to four hours, depending on you know, whether you burn off the ketone or not. So but I think I, I, would, I, would, I would say that you know, Professor Clark, yeah, you mentioning her, would argue that she would say that the ketogenic diet would, you know, might not be ideal if you could just eat ketones directly, right? So I think it's just like an interesting research tool if you could access ketones without having to follow weird diets. But on the flip side, we have people saying, can you drink um, human ketone and just eat pizza? And I guess like I would never be telling people, to, I'd rather not pe that people didn't do that. So I'd rather you made, you know, like, should have addressed your whole, and you know, Alex was saying sleep, diet. If you're, if you're, you know, fighting for your life against cancer, you want to do everything that you can in your power. And so for these people, I think, you know, adhere to the diet as strongly as you can and then let's see let's do the research um as i said the animal data there is really strong and we have a collaborator that's working with professor clark in belgium and he's testing this in an animal model of cancer now and those results will come out soon i mean i i don't know very much about the details but he described that data as the most beautiful data he's ever seen and so i'm really excited to see it <laughs> oh no i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not i, I don't think i don't know whether it's so i will just um but we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Let's keep watching. Having this available now means that um, at the very least we can get feedback from members of the community who do decide to use it like that and hopefully we can find a way to help accelerate the research pipeline and actually run studies and answer the questions because at the moment the, the theory is there that it's worked and there's a lot of people with ex positive experiences and I, I, you know, touch wood, I hope that there's something there. Great. I want to have question or time for two more, two last questions here before opening up to mingling and just more, more snacks and drinks here. Uh, so, second last question. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, we talked a lot about experiments, virtually our high level experiment. How do you evaluate and mitigate the risk that's involved with experimentation? Alex, has been quiet. No, it, you know, it's funny. I, I've been sitting here thinking the greatest thing about, you know, products like this up on the shelves is people use them and you know, unfortunately, I think a handful of people, I don't think anybody's gonna die, but uh, you know, it, I come from a community where people do try stupid things and die, and uh, <laughs> every so often. And, um, but the, uh, I, I guess my point is, it's, it's people doing a lot of different stuff that you would never try in a lab. I look at it as a positive thing. You know, I don't want them creating like Godzilla in their basement or something. But the fact that they may try something, that's how, that's how science traditionally happened. And, um, you know, putting all these tools out there and having people unconstrained by, you know, grants and all this other sort of university protocols within reason, um, I think is a good thing. And, um, and then you have, you know, other people who are, you know, the universities or the labs or whatever that are going to have protocols and safety things and stuff like that. But, um, I can't remember who said this. Some famous American, uh, I think it was an Air Force general, said, you know, life is not like an inherently safe, uh, you know, process or thing to be doing. And I think we've kind of forgotten that. And, uh, you know, when I go, go, I've been to a lot of uh, uh, places in the world that people have been making fun of lately. And, um, you know, I find people there are doing a lot of fascinating stuff and they're not miserable. And they're enjoying their lives, frankly, and they live with a lot of stress, and they live with a lot of disease, and a lot of other stuff, and they just find workarounds. Um, and that, that, I mean, I would love to give them some of this technology. Who knows what they would do with it? They're, I mean, just looking at what they're doing with cell phones is insane. Yeah, also just riff on that. I think, I mean, I think it's the most American thing is to just do experiments on, and, and have choice to do the, those experiments. Um, but I think with that power, you know, you, you should educate yourself. So I think if you want general broad guidelines or, or guide rails, right, things that are, 
you know, have human data, safety data especially, much more interesting and much more experimental friendly than things that have only been tested on animals, for example. If you want to be even safer than that, things that are FDA generally regarded as safe, safer than, you know, something that might just come out of a military research program. Um, so, um, but then I would also say, you know, you know, I think I'm sure people in the community here, like, there are people that probably have more experiment, experience experimenting. So, you know, ask for advice. <coughs> the internet has a ton of different forums. That's kind of how I first started looking at biohacking, you know, three, four years ago. Um, I, I think the beauty of decentralization of information is that the content is out there. I think it just depends on you having the motivation to go find and explore it. I think like what Jeff's saying is like make an informed risk reward decision because there's always going to be risk attached to things. But what's what's the reward? And so making making sure that you've informed, got up to date on all of the information, um, and therefore you know, I think you make a better decision. I saw two hands go up at the same time, so I want to take your question and your question as the last two questions. This is more Scott. of a comment yeah. on that conversation. Um, so, my name is Scott, I'm a doctor. So, and when people ask me these questions, I get more, you know, what I'm going to after coming to see me to talk. And this is a question that I get a lot of, is this safe? How do I do this? And I go, well, I don't know. Because nobody knows what happens when you take 10 things and do all at the same time. So, if you can, start with one intervention at a time, or at least exactly that way, and see how you do before you start adding 10 things at once. Number one, you don't know what actually helps. Yeah. Number two is it's, it could be unsafe. So if you take you know three ketone products and then don't eat any food for seven days, I mean you might be fine or you might not. Right. So it's important that you just kind of think about it as like my body's a network and things take some time. Let me do one intervention at a time. You can use the metrics that you can use now. You can use blood glucose monitoring, you can use HRV, you can do any of this stuff. But if you can curb your enthusiasm. I agree with that. I mean, I think just from a, a hacker perspective, you can't measure 10 variables all at once. So, yeah, no, appreciate that comment, Scott. Yeah. And then the last question here before opening it up. Um, we have, uh, you know, looked at some early, you know, experimentations there. Um, that's something that we hope to you know, do more of, and, and, and that's what you know, you know, Brianna is spending you know, quite a bit of time on um, working and, and collaborating with you know, researchers, especially around longevity, uh, sports performance, cognitive performance, that we're looking to continue to build partnerships on. So if, if that's of interest, happy to discuss offline. Anyways, thanks so much for coming out, and I want you to, you know, thank you for the, for the panel members here. We appreciate your time. Should we give them a round of applause? <laughs>